Hello again, everyone. In today's part two episode, I'm going to wrap up my discussion on cryptology. So if you haven't listened to part one, go on back and do that first. But now, without further ado, let's jump back in. anything else, I just want to quickly review some things that we talked about last time. You should have a pretty good understanding of the fundamentals of cryptology. It's the study of information transmission and the hiding of said information using systems of code or codes. And cryptography is the field which involves encrypting messages and whatnot, while cryptanalysis is essentially the code-breaking half of cryptology. Cryptographers and cryptanalysts are each the yin to the other's yang. As cryptography advances, cryptanalysis follows suit, and thus the cycle continues as cryptography must get even more complex. So, if you don't remember how I ended last episode, I mentioned that there is a really interesting moment in cryptology's history that has to do with the Second World War. Many of you probably already know what I'm about to tell you. But for those of you who don't, I'm going to give you a clue. What's a six-letter word for puzzle or challenge that begins with the letter E? The word I'm looking for is enigma. Before and throughout World War II, Nazi forces employed a machine that could automatically encode messages with a complex, well, for the time at least, it was complex, substitution cipher based on the setup of the machine. This encryption hardware was called the Enigma, and it was an intimidating tool that many people in both the Axis powers and the Allied forces believed to be impossible to crack. You see, the machine itself wasn't the dangerous factor. It was the machine's settings, or cipher key, that was important, because there were billions of possible cipher keys. Every day or so, Nazi cryptographers would change the setup and exchange important military information. And I suppose that you can understand why the Allies would want to crack the Enigma. Which brings us to the remarkable story of the code-breaking team that branched from MI6, or Britain's secret intelligence service. This special group was called Bletchley Park, and they were dedicated to studying cryptography and cryptanalysis during the war. The team's greatest feat was cracking the Enigma cipher, which, after the first time, they routinely continued to do. Nazi cryptographers had let their hubris get the best of them and believed, like so many others, it was impossible to work out the key. Because, pfft, no spy would be willing to check every possible key, right? I mean, they seriously thought that German messages were perfectly safe, and, being the chumps that they were, continued to use the Enigma, even after cryptologists in Bletchley Park figured out its secrets. I mean, of course, the Allies didn't tell them that they'd succeeded in uncovering their hidden messages, but can you believe they were so full of themselves that they kept being so careless, even as things started to go downhill for them? 
I mean, just imagine some Nazi leaders in a meeting scratching their heads like, guys, how do they keep getting one step ahead of us? This is just wild. If any of this is sounding familiar to you, that could be because you've seen the movie Imitation Game by Morton Tildum. It's a film about this very part of cryptology's history, and more specifically, the British mathematician Alan Turing, who is played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the movie, who was recruited to Bletchley Park and worked with his peers to build a machine that could decipher Nazi codes encrypted through the Enigma machine. Turing was a heroic spy who certainly played a role in our side's victory in World War II. And um, taking a quick detour away from cryptology for a moment, while researching Alan Turing's involvement in the Allies' success, I was reminded of the story of this other incredible spy that influenced the win. You definitely should take a minute to look up Noor Inayat Khan and her contribution to the French resistance during Nazi occupation in Europe. Really, the woman's an inspiration, and although her story isn't necessarily rooted in cryptology, I really wanted to add her into this. The act of spying during World War II, or any war for that matter, was more real, more critical than any James Bond movie or spy versus spy antics could portray. Cryptology's role in espionage at the time was integral to the spying, and it's not only seen in the story of solving the enigma, the battle at Midway is another historical moment that we can tie to the field. One of the coolest things about cryptology that it points out, and I think that Simon Singh puts it best here, is that mathematics is not just fascinating for its own sake, but can also be a matter of life and death. Mathematicians can be heroes too. And yes, I do know how cheesy that sounded. No, I don't care, because it's a fact and you know it. Ciphers, like the Caesar one, the Atbash one, and that of the Enigma machine were indeed advanced for their time. But as technology has improved more and more over the decades, decrypting ciphers, like those, has just become easier and easier. There's something called Moore's Law, which essentially theorizes that things can and will get computed or finished exponentially faster as time goes on. And honestly, Moore has been proven right so far. Ciphers that we can represent with two-way functions, meaning we can easily go forward and backward with the operation, such as basic addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, were once thought to be difficult to solve. For example, like I mentioned in part one, the Shift-3 Caesar cipher was effective for the ancient Grecian military leader. Even though you only needed to add 3 in order to encrypt and subtract 3 in order to decrypt. As you might be guessing, with the advancement of computing hard and software, people needed to start figuring out ways to encode things using one-way functions. Or operations that are difficult to be undone, so to speak. One-way functions are hard to reverse because they involve things like exponentials, modular arithmetic, hey, throw back to last episode, prime numbers, and the difficulty of factoring compared to multiplication. This leads me to another important time period in cryptology's saga, the 1970s. 
It was a decade in which many concepts in cybersecurity were born, or at least really started getting discussed amongst industry leaders. And in fact, it was when one of the most popular ciphers that our modern world had seen was developed. The data encryption standard, or DES for short, cipher came into the spotlight during the mid-1970s, but eventually became insecure and outdated. Insecure? Unsecure? Thus, in 2001, scholars set up the Advanced Encryption Standard, or AES, which was even more advanced and, to this day, is still a secure, popular encryption method used worldwide. The 70s had also ushered in public key cryptography. Like a woman named Carrie Ann of the Crash Course team from PBS explains in her YouTube video, when you see the padlock symbol in your URL box at the top of your internet browser, you're seeing the computer use public key cryptography to verify the server. Key exchange, hey, I'm having flashbacks to last episode again, to establish a secret temporary key and more to protect you and your online activity. Of course, that's a much more modern application of public key cryptography, but all of this was a big leap in the practice of keeping people's secrets. Well, secret. And it's all thanks to one-way functions. However, I must also say that we began to see political issues involving privacy divide people once the DES was publicly outlined. But that's a can of worms that I'd rather not open up here. Instead, I want to start ending things by talking about the current state and potential future for cryptology. Right now, we're living in the age of information and technology. Whether you like to think it or not, cryptology is growing in relevance every single day. And that's just the truth. This field continues to impact us and our surroundings as time keeps moving. Originally, the main concern of cryptographers and analysts was to make messages secret, but in recent decades, the field has expanded beyond confidentiality concerns to include techniques for authentication, digital signatures, interactive proofs, and secure computation. I said at the beginning of this episode that the dance between cryptographers and cryptanalysts kind of repeats itself as time moves, as technology develops, and as we keep satisfying the predictions of Moore's Law. Nothing is more testament to this than the conceptualization of quantum computing. I know, I know, that sounds like something straight out of a science fiction novel. But some researchers think that this advancement in tech is imminent. Honestly, I haven't looked much further into it than simply finding out the very basics. And, you guys, it's going to make current encryption, like AES, absolutely easy to crack. What takes even our most acclaimed computers hours to complete will take mere minutes or even seconds for a quantum computer to do. It's supposed to be far more efficient than any computer we have now, and what we see as complex and hard to do right now, in terms of both cryptology and math, will probably seem like child's play in the future. Cryptographers will need to develop way, way, way stronger, more complex methods. And possibly, like Whitfield Diffie has written, cryptography may be merely a distant memory in the year 3001.
All right, this took me way longer to finish than I thought it would, but what's new? Although I did really enjoy researching and writing today's episode. It's actually made me reconsider what classes to take in my last semester. But anyway, I really hope that you guys enjoyed this two-parter. We're going to be at episode six next time. Isn't that wild? I mean, time's really flown by. Well, as always, thank you all for joining me this time. Feel free to go to the website for episode notes if you're interested in seeing pictures of the Enigma machine and Alan Turing or some other fun little things at spaghellipie.wordpress.com or say hi via email and send me a message at spaghellipie at gmail.com. But even if you don't do those things, I'll see you guys next time. The theme song for Spaghetti Pie is Pluck It Up by Dan Heenig. Special thanks to my advisor, Dr. Patrick Shipman, and my sister, Alex, for creating the cover art for this podcast. Thank you.